Good morning. It's, it's good to see you once again. I'd like to welcome everyone to our worship service. If you are here for the first time, I'd like to give you a special welcome to all our guests today. Uh, my name is Pastor Norbert. We consider ourselves to be a small church with a big heart, and my prayer is that you will experience that today. Now, there are a lot of times that when we read the scriptures, to us modern people, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense because times change, and therefore cultures change, and most of the things written in the Bible are practices based on ancient cultures, especially the Old Testament. Cultures totally different from Western civilization or from the cultures where we grew up. Back in the Philippines, we have a practice called manupo. You know that. You do that when you were a child. It is when we take the elder's hand, the back of the hand, and touch it with our forehead. We call it manupo. Kids, listen. There are kids here? All right. If not, not kids, young people, listen. Every Christmas when I was growing up, I made a lot of money by doing this. Manapo. That's a tip for you. <laughs> it was not properly taught to me, but I think I had an idea what that means. But when I turned college, I took a class in Philippine history, and I learned that this gesture was largely influenced by the Spaniards when they came to colonize the Philippine archipelago. They want to make sure they control the religious and societal structure of of our nation, so they introduce this. The Spanish version is the kiss on the hand. They take the hand of someone superior, kiss the hand, that means I am subordinate to you, that's why I'm kissing your hand. But our version in the Philippines, when they came there, was to manupo, touch the back of the hand with our forehead, to tell the people in government that we are subordinate and we respect them. This is one of the reasons why I personally do not practice this. It's my personal thing. But maybe this coming Christmas, for you, I'll make an exemption. Now, in some parts of the Philippines, another culture that we have among the Lumads in south of the Philippines and among the, some people group in the Cordillerans in the north, we practice worship of the spirits. We practice what we call anito, the spirits. What's interesting is that this practice asked us to offer some weird things, rice cakes and flowers and vegetables and sometimes chickens and eggs. Now, it's not really peculiar to our culture because for Buddhism in Southeast Asia, they also practice the same thing. Their offering ranges from bottled water to M&Ms to fake paper money. And don't forget the grains. Um, I went to Taiwan many, many years ago, and I saw them offering hopia. Interesting. Now, on the other hand, the Bible gives us a very short list of what can be offered on the altar of God. Last week, we talked about the ola. Now, for our Hispanic uh, family, it's not hello. In Hebrew, I know it's, it's hello for Hispanic community, but in Hebrew, the word ola means burnt offering. It's the thing that you put on the altar to be burned as an offering to God. So the burnt offering for the nation of Israel were bulls and goats and sheep, sometimes birds. But they are burnt in the altar. It's called Olah. But Leviticus chapter 2 gives us a different kind of sacrifice. It's called grain offering. 
Now, contrary to other religions, the God of the Bible was very strict. He requires that this grain will be the only non-animal sacrifice to be burnt on the altar. That means in the ancient ritual, they cannot offer vegetables or flowers or plants, no chocolates, no paper money. Today, I want to talk to you about grain offering. What is this ancient practice for? What does this grain offering teach me about God, and why is this significant to my faith? Now, if you haven't heard this or read this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open this for you. The rules of grain offering is very simple. If it is uncooked, it has to be poured with oil, frankincense, and salt. If it is cooked, it has to have oil and salt, but no frankincense. Again, if it's cooked, it must be unleavened. It must, it must be without yeast. You know the crackers that we have in the Philippines, the thin, flat ones? Those are the unleavened bread without yeast. This is what is required for offering the tabernacle. Now, what's interesting here is this. When you go to the temple and you bring a bucket of grains, the priest will then take a handful of grains, it's called kamets, and then he will throw it on the altar and it will be burned. The rest of the grains in the bucket will be given to the priests for them to eat. This is interesting. It's not all burnt on the altar. It is actually given to the priests. Why is that? Now, you remember the tabernacle has two partitions. One, the sort of the living room, is called the holy place. It's where you find the menorah, the bread of presence, and the altar of incense. The living room is called the most holy place. In Hebrew, it's called Chodesh Chodeshim. The altar of the covenant, sorry, the ark of the covenant was inside. The presence of God is there. The Bible said in Leviticus chapter 2 that the rest of the grains will be given to the priest because it is most holy to God. The phrase there is Chodesh Chodeshim. Why is that? It's because this grain offering can become an extension of God's presence to the people. As the people give their offering of grain to God, Yahweh gives it back to the priest who are the representatives of the people and therefore have fellowship with the offerer. The grain offering is the fellowship. That's why it's called most holy to God. Let me read to you Leviticus chapter 2, the first three verses. If you have your Bible or Bible apps, if you have, you may look that and follow me as I read. It says, when, everyone, when anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it on to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense, and the priests shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain... Offering shall be for Aaron and his sons, is the most holy part of the Lord's offerings. Now, I'd like you to expand your imagination because this is best understood in symbols. Now, the Bible said when Cain offered, Genesis chapter 4, when Cain offered his sacrifice to God, the Bible said God did not accept his offering. And you have probably a clue as to why. Because Cain offered from the fruit of the ground. Just the previous story, Genesis chapter 3, God cursed the ground because Adam and Eve failed from their duty. They sinned. 
They were kicked out from the Garden of Eden and the ground was cursed. And therefore, anything that grows out of the ground is unacceptable to God. We cannot offer that to God. Now, if this is so, why are the grains in the book of Leviticus accepted as sacrifice if it's coming out from the ground? Because you see, this law in Leviticus of all the offerings is given to be fully operational, not in the wilderness, but when they enter the promised land. You see, you cannot exactly grow grains from the wilderness. You cannot plant and harvest when you're in the desert, correct? So that means this law of grain offering can only be followed when they enter the promised land. The promised land is the new Eden. It's what we call the most, the holy land. This is where God dwells. This is God's inheritance. And therefore, anything that grows in the promised land can be acceptable to God. But here's a question. Have you ever wondered why this offering is very specific to grains? Why not potatoes? Why not broccoli? Why not malunggay? Why not sambong? I mean, this is very particular to grains. Now, it's something to do with bread. Now, right after the story of the first family, after they were thrown out of the Garden of Eden, after the ground was cursed, history took over and different civilizations were built. And suddenly, we are introduced to Egypt. At the very end of the book of Genesis, we are introduced to this land called Egypt. And the land of Egypt became the most prominent place outside of Eden, but with a different twist. Now, one of the sons of Jacob, by the name of Joseph, was sent by God in preparation for, a very, for a something catastrophic. Now, God sent Joseph in advance to become the administrator of the entire Egyptian economy. Let me read to you Genesis 41, verse 53. This is the continuing story of the people of Israel, beginning from the Garden of Eden. It says, Seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and then seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. Now, Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob, is sort of prophet. He can see visions. He had dreams. He can see the future. And he was sent by God there, and God gave him an advance notice of what will happen. There will be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And so Joseph was, was put as an administrator of the whole Egyptian economy. Verse 55, uh, verse 54 says, There was famine in the lands, but in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. You see that? See, the symbol of plenty in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is the Garden of Eden. But right after that, right after they were thrown out of the garden, everything was cursed. The ground was cursed. And yet here in Egypt, there was bread. It says, when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Instead of crying to God for bread, they cried to Pharaoh because you see, in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh is a sort of God. He's divine. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, I'm going to give you bread. I'm going to rain down. No, it's not written there. Instead, he said, go to Joseph, what he says to you do. Because he doesn't have the power to make bread. Only Joseph is the one because he's the one administering the grains. So Egypt here, in your imagination, so it seems was like the new Garden of Eden because there was bread. And the people cry to Pharaoh for bread instead of to God. 
But the truth is, only the only reason why there was bread in Egypt was because of Joseph, was because God sent Joseph in advance to gather in a time of plenty so that they will have bread in a time of famine. So that means the real source of bread is not Pharaoh, it's not Egypt, but God, because God is the one who sent Joseph. Now, let's talk about sourdough. This is a type of bread that a lot of people likes. This bread took another twist. So the family of Jacob settled in the land of Egypt. But over time, they became slaves. For 430 years, they were slaves in Egypt. And they too cried for help, and Yahweh answered. Yahweh, God gave them. Yahweh gave them Moses. Now, after much crying, God answered the prayer. And on the final night of their redemption, the Israelites were instructed to eat unleavened bread. Again, in Egypt, there was bread. So they were instructed to eat not just any kind of bread, but unleavened bread. This is the bread without yeast. The question is, why is it unleavened? Why does it have to have no yeast? If you are making a sourdough, for example, traditionally it takes 12 to 24 hours to make one from the scratch because you will have to wait for the yeast to take effect. In other words, it takes a while to make bread. You cannot do it in haste. But on the final night of their redemption, on the last plague, God told them to pack up everything because the following morning, they will have to go. Pharaoh will have to finally let them go. But before they do that, that night they were asked, they were told to do one last meal as a memorial. They have to eat this meal to remember God's redemption for them. This meal is called Passover. Now, we, we know about this. We heard about this. It was eaten as a memorial for God's redemption from Egypt. Let me read to you Exodus 12. In this manner, you shall eat it, that is the unleavened bread, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. There's no time for the yeast to take effect. Therefore, the bread they made to eat is the unleavened bread because they were in a hurry. That's the whole point of the Passover bread. The following morning, the angel of death would have devastated the whole of Egypt and Pharaoh would finally let them go. So they went out of Egypt, they crossed the Sea of Reeds, they settled in the wilderness. But in the wilderness, they ran out of food. I mean, they don't have enough to carry. So in, in the wilderness, they began to grumble and complain and say, you know what? In Egypt, we have ribeye steaks and jollibee chicken and, and adobo and French baguette and whatever. But here we are dying in the wilderness. God is not giving us anything. What are we going to do? Here's what God did. Exodus 16, verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven. Very interesting. In the evening, quail came up because they were asking for meat and covered the camp. In the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people saw it, they said to one another, What is it? You know the Hebrew word for what is it? Is mana. Mana. What is it? 
This is the name of the food they ate for 40 years. Mana. They haven't figured it out. It is what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Very interesting. See, in the Philippines, we call it sky flakes. Right? Flakes, bread from the sky, sky, sky flakes. Make sense? So that means they were literally fed by God from heaven. This is like when all of Egypt cried to fare for bread, Joseph was the answer. But in here, the Israelites called God for bread, and God raised bread from heaven. Why? Because God is the true source of bread. But to be clear, this bread is not the ultimate provision. It was just a foretaste of the new Eden, of what Eden would look like. They were promised that the land they were to inherit, the destination was a land flowing with milk and honey. Plenty of bread. That was the destination. And the Bible said the Israelites received manna every day for 40 years. Amazing. Every day for 40 years. So in the wilderness, you can think of it, literally, they pray the Lord's prayer instinctively. Give us this day our daily bread. The following day, they will pray again to have the manna. Give us this day our daily bread. And then manna will come. The following day, they will pray again. Give us this day our daily bread. Literally, this is where God, Jesus took the basis for the Lord's prayer, the manna every day. Give us this day our daily bread. And since they were in the wilderness for that long, the only bread they knew for 40 years was manna. What is it? But this manna took another twist when they entered the promised land. When they entered the promised land, here's what Joshua said in Joshua chapter 5. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, that is at the border of Canaan, they kept the Passover, again, going back to Exodus, there's Passover, on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grains. Interesting, unleavened, because again, there was no yeast to work with. And manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel. What this means is that they ate the last manna on the last Passover because the following day, they were able, able to eat grains from the land of promise. When they got there, it was harvest season. There was plenty of food to eat. So they harvested and they ate the grains. What this means is one thing. God is faithful. If God is faithful for every day for 40 years, he has been on time every morning giving them bread. See, God is not just faithful. He was on point and he was on time. Here's a question for you. How is God faithful in your life? Is God always on time in your life? God is very faithful. You see, a lot of people are just wishing to see a miracle. And they say, if I only see a miracle, I will believe in God. Just one miracle, and I will believe in God. You see, the wilderness is proof that miracles is not necessary to lead people to believe in God. Because after 40 days, every day for 40, day, 40 years, the Israelites 
kept grumbling, grumbling, and complaining, and rebelling against God. Even though for every day for 40 years, they saw miracles. And yet, God was faithful and patient with them. See, a good parent doesn't withhold food when their children become rebellious, right? You don't tell your kids, you're not going to have dinner tonight, buddy. You're a, you've been a very bad, bad boy. You don't do that. You see, God was patient to them. He was faithful and he was patient. That's how God was to the Israelites for 40 years. And as I was reflecting on this, I realized that Christians should be very careful when they intentionally stop obeying God and start enjoying the world too much. And these Christians proudly say, I still have the blessings of God. God and I are still on good terms. I don't lack anything. I still have a job. I'm in good health and my family is doing fine. Be very careful. Very careful. Because material blessings are not the ultimate proof that you are still in God's good graces. You see, what it simply means is that God is patient with you, just like with the Israelites for 40 years. There was a time when Israel was attacked by foreign nation and they felt like God abandoned them. They were not wrong. Because these Israelites believe that as long as they offer sacrifice to God, as long as they have plenty of animal and grain sacrifices, regardless of their neglect of their commandments, they are safe. God will just look the other way. They are okay. So when they were attacked by a foreign nation, God allowed it. Why? Because God was being faithful. It was part of God's covenant with them. If they obey, God will bless. If they disobey, God will punish. It was part of God's covenant with them. But the real question is, why? Why did God allow them to be attacked by the enemy? Does it mean God has abandoned them? Does it mean that God broke his covenant with them? Is he part of the covenant of Israel is that they will be faithful to Yahweh. And in return, Yahweh will be faithful. But since Israel entered the promised land, beginning from the time of Joshua, up to even up to now, Israel has only mirrored the lives of their ancestors, rebelling and complaining and grumbling against Yahweh. Make no mistake about it. They have not received Jesus Christ as their Messiah. It was an act of rebellion. They crucified the Lord, the one sent by God, Yahweh himself, Jesus Christ. So, does it mean that God has totally abandoned them? No. But you know, in the news from Saturday morning up to now, Israel was attacked by the Palestinians. And more than 200 people, uh, this morning it's 300 people died from both sides. And this war is escalating. Does this mean God has totally abandoned the Israelites? Does this mean God has broken off his covenant with them? The answer to that, you may be surprised, is the grain offering. See, when it is cooked, the Jews called it, or calls it matzah. It's a very thin wafer, like sky flakes, and it's a little bit salty, but it's flat. It tastes like cracker, practically like sky flakes. But Leviticus was clear it must be seasoned with salt, the salt of the covenant. Let me read for you what exactly means. Leviticus 2.13. It says, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. 
You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Why is salt so important in the grain offering? Because salt, this is not, this is not new, is a preservative. It's a metaphor for permanence. What this means is that whenever the Israelites offer grains with salt, they are reminding God and reminding themselves that the covenant covenant God made with them on Mount Sinai has a permanent effect, which means God will be forever faithful to his promise. It is as permanent as salt, which means when the Babylonians attacked Israel in 586 BC, when the Romans attacked Israel again in 70 AD and burned Jerusalem in the temple, God has not fully abandoned them. It means God has still been faithful with them because it's all part of God's grand plan. When they do that, when they disobey, God doesn't withhold his blessings. He just gives them punishment. He calls it discipline. See, the Bible says that God disciplines those he loves. He only disciplines the real children. Folks, God is faithful even when we are not. When Jesus appeared, he reminded that God has not abandoned them. As a matter of fact, when you read the Gospels, Jesus recasted the story of Exodus back to the people. When he came, he said, I'm going to make a do-over of what happened in the wilderness. It will happen here again. What is that, what is that thing that happened in the wilderness? The bread for 40 years. I'm going to do over. I'm going to recast this story again. There will be manna coming from heaven. This is what exactly Jesus said. In his own words, he said, John chapter 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. I mean, this is interesting. So he said, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness. They died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. And he said very specifically, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, of course, the people did not understand. Is Jesus trying to give his arm so that we can bite of his flesh? Of course, we, we cannot really understand. We're not cannibals. The only way we understand this is that we bite on his flesh. But is Jesus saying that? Did Jesus literally mean we bite of his flesh? Of course not. There's something in verse 56 that gives an insight to what this means. Verse 56, he said, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. What does it mean, abide in me and I in him? Now, those of you who are married, when you entered marriage and you consummate the marriage, you are appropriating each other. The Bible said, the two shall become one. You have become one flesh. As a result, your body is no longer yours. That's why you share the same last name. You have become one. You see, in spiritual terms, what Jesus is saying is that when we eat his flesh, we become one with him physically and spiritually. On this basis, he told the disciples, I will be with you to the ends of the earth because they have become one with Jesus. It is when we eat his body and remember him, he's physically and spiritually present in us. How did that happen exactly? 
You see, all the four Gospels give us an account, the same account of what happened during the last meal. Luke chapter 22, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread. Matthew chapter 26, verse 17. On the first day of unleavened bread. Mark chapter 14, verse 12. On the first day of the unleavened bread. Brothers, what I'm saying is that the occasion of the last meal was about unleavened bread. It all goes way back to the Passover they did before the last plague in Egypt. What does this remind you of? The bread they ate in Egypt before the last plague. That was the unleavened bread. You see, the last meal was a recasting of the Passover meal. It should remind you that the, of the grain offering. It is both unleavened and seasoned with salt, which means this bread, the bread Jesus broke, was the very thing he spoke about. The bread represents his body. It's both a reminder to him as well as to us that the promise of Jesus of forgiveness, redemption, resurrection, of love and patience is a permanent thing. It is binding. It is forever. His promise to you and me is irrevocable. He won't take it back. He won't change his mind. You see, his redemption is not based on how faithful you are or how obedient you are. His faithfulness is not based on how many Sundays you came to church or how many money you give, how much money you give to church, or how long have you been in faith. God's faithfulness is not based on your faithfulness. So how did this thing happen? Luke chapter 22. It says he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You see, there's no magic in this actual bread. There's no intrinsic power with this bread that gives you eternal life, all that will reverse aging. It was an ordinary unleavened bread. But what Jesus did was to recast the grain offering. What he did on the last meal was like Leviticus chapter 2, the grain offering. What this means is that every time we eat this bread, we encounter him, we have fellowship with him, like the priests who eat the grain. It is most holy to God. So in Leviticus chapter 2, when you, you present a grain offering, Again, the priest will take a handful and throw it on the altar. But the rest is given to the priest for fellowship. See, what Jesus did also on the last meal is to break the bread and give it to his disciples. For what? For fellowship. This is all the same. Leviticus chapter 2 all over again. But let's not forget. There's one thing. One thing that happened on the last meal. Judas was on the last meal. You know Judas. He was one of them. This tells me one thing. Not everyone who partakes of the bread and drinks from the cup are real disciples. I mean, there will be deserters and pretenders and traitors. Their actions will be revealed. It will show in their lives. And you know the scariest part of the Bible? It's not the description of hell. That's not scary. You know the scariest part of the Bible? It's the scene in heaven when someone comes up to, to Jesus and say, you know what? I was a member of Point of Grace Church. 
I, I did the whole nine yards. I went through baptism. I joined a small group. I volunteered in the ministry. As a matter of fact, I even spoke in tongues. I have the gift of the Holy Spirit. But then Jesus say, I never knew you. You're not mine. Go away. You don't belong here. That's scary. Let's, re- let's reimagine this. Thief on the cross. So Jesus was in the middle. There were two thieves on the cross. Let's reimagine this thief on the cross who talked about asking Jesus for the paradise. And Jesus said, this thief said, remember me. And Jesus said, today I will, you will be with me in paradise. Let's reimagine this guy entered heaven. And then he was met by an angel. And the angel would say, good morning, sir. What's your name? I need, I need your name. So he said, I'm the famous thief on the cross. You must know me. The angel said, okay, uh, you're familiar. I just need to give you some questions and a checklist so that we can make sure that you belong here. And so he, he took out a checklist and he said, do you believe in justification by faith? Thief says, no. Do you believe in the Trinity? Thief says, I haven't heard about that thing. Angel said, let's see, do you believe in predestination? Thief said, no way. All right, this is kind of embarrassing. I'm going to get my supervisor. So he goes out, gets a supervisor, supervisor comes in. And supervisor said, I'm going to make this clear. You want to enter heaven, but you're not on the checklist. You did not pass the checklist. What makes you think you belong here? And the thief would say, because the guy in the middle said, I can come. He invited me. See, there's only one reason for us to enter that domain of God if we have this invitation from God, from Jesus Christ. Today, we are memorializing the Lord's Supper. If you consider yourself a true disciple of Jesus, you are welcome to the table. If you're not sure where you stand, you can skip it when we will not judge. But if you feel the urge, that silent voice, a nudge that's telling you to come to the table and accept the invitation, there's only one, one thing to do. You've got to say yes to Jesus. As you take this bread and drink the cup, in your own words say, Jesus, I believe in you. Jesus, I trust you. Jesus, I accept your invitation. Let's have a moment of reflection as the elements are being passed. Let's think about this. Think about how we are or we have become like a grain offering to God, the most holy to God, how our lives have become most holy to God. This is your invitation.